Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My next guest has just joined us on the line. Abdul Rahman Abdullah is a visual artist who's based over in WA on Noongar country, but currently has an exhibition showing at Linden New Art in St Kilda, an installation of three incredibly detailed sculptural works. The show is called Journeys. Abdul Rahman Abdullah, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, Talk to us about these sculptural works, each one kind of very detailed in the, in the carving. When I first looked at them, I wondered whether they were cast, for example, but you've carved these, uh, these creatures, which are quite significant in terms of uh, a, a mythological story, a spiritual story. Yeah. You, you've carved them out of wood. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of my thing. Um, I like to do life-size figurative wood carvings, and I work with a lot of animals, um, this particular group of three, yeah, it's for, uh, at Linden for a project called Journeys. These three, I wanted to bring them together because they all sort of reflect on ideas that come from hadiths. Um, and uh, for, for listeners who don't know, the hadiths are sort of, I'm, I'm, I should let, let people know, I'm a Muslim, obviously from my name, <laughs> the dead giveaway. Um, the hadiths are this collection of uh, sayings from the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, rather than something from the Quran, and there's sort of quite many and varied uh, little passages, and you know, they act as sort of guidances. They act in all sorts of ways. You know, they can, you can sort of reflect on them however you want, really, in my opinion. So um, these are three works that I brought together, which respond to those. And I, lo- I love the idea of sort of mining this 1,400-year-old set of um, you know this set of information, set of knowledge, um, and seeing how it can reflect on contemporary experiences today. Yeah. Now, if we talk, let's break down some of the individual images. So Practical mm. Magic, for example, which is, it's a camel crouched in the middle of a, a circle of rope, the rope yeah. tethered to its neck. Uh, and is this a, I haven't been to the exhibition myself yet, so I'm basing this conversation on images that I've seen, but is this yeah. a, a life-size carving of a baby camel? It is a life-size carving of a baby camel. Some people have said, oh, it's a bit small, but it's actually... It's, <laughs> but the original reference I used was um, a taxidermy stillborn camel, so it's about as small as a dromedary camel can be. Um, but that was all part of, um, you know, really creating the, an emotional experience, I guess, when you encounter the work. And that work is actually, it, it may not be immediately obvious, but it was a work um, uh, I made about my mother and one of the... Um, Basically, the, the biggest compliment my mother can offer someone is to describe them as a very practical person. You know, that's the way she approaches the world, pure practicality. Um, but the, the, the hadith I sort of, um, you know, arrived at in response to that was something which has always stuck with me. I'm, uh, I should say I'm no expert on any of this. I'm no scholar. This is purely my own perspective. Um, there's one particular hadith which says, you know, trust in God, but tie your camel. And I just love the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the basic principle of, like, you know, believe all you want, but you've got to tie your shoelaces. You've got to, you know, you've got to do it yourself. Um, and I just love the, the values embedded in that. Um, yeah, but the work, so that's where the, the idea for the work comes from. But expanding on that, it sort of 
creates a real, you know, contradiction, a real tension in terms where it looks like this camel is, you know, it looks like a noose. It could be a tether. It could be any of those things. But sort of when you look into it and sort of gain, you know, extract some information from the work, you know, it, it points you in a different direction again. I want to lure people in and then throw something in their face. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's also interesting about the work is, yes, the, the camel calf is tethered, but it's not tethered to anything. It's, it's no. almost as if it's, it's been trained to stay put. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, and there's a few like, sort of formal barriers in that where the work, you know, the, the, the nylon rope, it's, it's about 100 metres of rope, I think, is sort of in a circle around the, um, the camel. And it creates like an island. It creates like this. It's almost a, a pool of light, um, the effect of it, which is all, you know, sort of, that's all part of the work, you know. It, it's art. It's a completely subjective experience. And when people approach that, they bring their, all their own sort of sensibilities, their own memories, their own mythologies to this animal, to this, you know, juxtaposition of materials. And I love that too. I love tapping into what people will bring to something as well. Now, as I said, these, there's three works. They're, they're intricately carved. Yeah. When did you start to focus uh, your sculptural practice on these really detailed wood carvings? Well, I said 2023 20, now. I've been an artist for, this is my, I think, 11th year. 10 or 11 years I've been an artist. Um, pretty much after the first year. So I graduated in 2012 from art school. As a mature age, I was in my mid-30s already. So for about the first year or so, I was still working... I would sculpt and mould, do a lot of mould making and casting, but I just really wanted to get away from those chemical processes. They weren't, they didn't, you know, the materials didn't speak to the work. They didn't add to what I wanted to the work. So I just switched from a sort of, um, how would you say, like you know, a, a, an addition form way of sculpting. You know, when you're building up something to a subtractive one where you were literally just carving it. So I just switched to wood. I just love the idea of. The materials my hands are on throughout the whole process is what I'm then presenting to audiences. Um, yeah, and I haven't looked back. I'm still not. I'm not finished with it. I've got a lot of carving to do. It's kind of become my thing. I see it as an extension of drawing, but weirdly, just uh, with a very stubborn pencil. <laughs> and also drawing in 3D. But that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it certainly makes sense that you're still kind of. You are shaping an object, but as you say, just using yep. a, a kind of a, a chisel and a hammer and a, and a block of wood rather than pencil and paper. But the, the ideas are fundamentally the same. Uh, one of the yeah, other yeah. works in Journeys uh, that I wanted to talk about is the uh, it's uh, an image of a winged horse. Now, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm more familiar with Greek uh, kind of legends, for example, rather than uh, kind of those from your culture. So talk to us a little bit about the, the significance of a winged horse. Ah, uh, this is a work called Burak. Um, this is a really special work for me. It was kind of a, I say a turning point, but a real sort of touchstone of, the, of my, I guess, my practice so far. Um, Burak is one of, it's quite a surprising, I guess, figure from Islamic, uh, um, you know, people would probably um, critique me for saying Islamic mythology, but, you know, that's a way of describing it. It's, um, and it was this, a winged horse figure who features more heavily described in the Hadith rather than in the Quran as this, uh, this um, winged horse who, horse-like creature, I should say, who features in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the passage called The Night Journey where the prophet was taken from Mecca to Jerusalem on this winged, winged um, horse figure 
and then from there up to heaven, back to Jerusalem, and back to Mecca, all in one night. Um, and it was, for a culture that is so visually austere, um, the idea of this winged horse just sort of appearing and then disappearing, is, it's been quite a, uh, you know, I guess quite a, a, a con, um, you know, a, a complication, I guess, in, in, the, in the stories. Um, it also represents a, a moment in the history, where, as far as my understanding goes, again, not a scholar, where at the time, you know, I'm talking about the 600s, um, Followers were asked to believe something unbelievable, and you know something went, you know, from quite a politicised organisation to a real faith-based, um, you know, uh, community. I guess so. It represents a, a, a massive turning point in the very initial stages of very, you know, what has become a global culture. Um, but I just love how it really complicates things. It really complicates the idea of believing and the idea of logic, and you know. I put myself in the position of, like, how would I respond to that? The other side of this, too, this winged um, horse figure is, you know, it, it appears in so many different cultures, you know. You know, as you were saying, from Greek and Mesopotamian, and, like, these, these winged figures are just such a an element in, you know, I wouldn't say universal, but a, quite a broad, um, you know, um, a broader way of cultures around the world. Um the other side of it, too, is something that appears throughout, you know, sort of the Muslim world historically, up until today, in different parts of the world, more so than others, particularly, in, you know, in India, the Philippines, Southeast Asia, where the sculptures and images of Burak figure have appeared quite a lot. And in doing this work, I wanted to contribute my own version of what that Burak might look like or my, you know, experience of that Burak figure. Um, contribute my own version to this history of that, you know, and in the Muslim, in Muslim terms, you know, that's a 1,400-year-old history of, you know, you know, basically creating a visual representation of that. Um, so this, this is my version. Um, and I, I unashamedly want to make it something very beautiful, something, you know, something quite a vulnerable-looking animal in that space. Um, you know, something, take something sort of fantastical and make it kind of, Ordinary, something you can encounter. Um, yeah, that's that's one way of looking at it. There are many ways of looking at that work, but that's one way. Yeah. Uh, I'm speaking with Abdul Rahman Abdullah, the visual artist whose exhibition Journeys is currently showing at Linden New Art in St Kilda until the 4th of June. Now, Abdul Rahman, you've said you're a man of faith as well as an artist, and I was curious, um, is art making um, a form of... Uh, I don't know, a, a manifestation of faith for you? Is it separate from faith or is it informed by faith or is it actually a, a, a spiritual kind of act for you? I don't know. I don't know if I've ever described myself as a man of faith, to be honest. <laughs> I'm a Muslim, but I have a very complicated relationship with the whole thing as well. And it's something I love to explore through my art practice. But, you know, it has been... I have been... Um, I guess the you know the act of making these things, creating these experiences for others, and you know creating these windows into one person's perspective on a culture. And for me, it's a real mashup culture. I mix my you know my dad's white Australian, my mum's Malay. I get a real intercultural perspective of these things. Um, it, it is one way of exploring it. It's one way of sitting with the, um, ideas, and it's one way of 
being able to talk about, present and experience these things, which are quite complicated, are quite contradictory. And to me, sit outside of fact or fiction, they sort of, they relate to, they relate to something else that human beings need. It's like we need, we need these stories to tell us who we are. We need these touch points to ground us in this world and the, you know, the world around us, I guess. Um, and I see art as a way of guiding myself through that, if that makes sense, um, in a way that other people can also come along for that journey uh, in some ways. You know, and, and there's no way that I would say that I'm making religious art or proselytizing or trying to tell people, oh, I've got a claim to the truth. Everyone's got their claim to the truth, and everyone's truth, everyone's truth, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just as um, you know, just as valid as anyone else's. No one has that monopoly. Um, so this, this is just my way of, I don't know, expanding an experience of a particular mix of cultures. Um, you know, we, we just, as human beings, we need that. We need something beyond the, you know, beyond the objective truth. We need more than that. <laughs> this is my way of um, giving myself that. Well, it's uh, certainly for me. It's one of the, uh, the the purposes of art is to to give us uh, something higher than ourselves. I'm an atheist, uh, yeah. but for yeah. me, there's something. Tra- great art is transcendent. It tells us something more. It shows us something more about what it means to be human. Oh yes, I, I love that idea. You know, um, that, that's one of the the purposes it can serve, and it can serve that purpose for people no matter what sort of culture or, or religious identity they bring to that, you know, it can be universal, it can sort of go beyond even, you know, even language. That's what I love, particularly about, you know, the way I work with, you know, with sculpture. I love to put someone, put people in the presence of something, something otherworldly and unashamedly poetic. I'm chasing, a, you know, in a, a certain sense of aesthetic beauty. Um, but I just think that serves the experience, and it's a part of what human beings seek. We lo- we're looking for meaning in the world around us, and even if it doesn't make sense, as long as it's true, <laughs> <laughs> now, then it will give us that. It will feed us. We've talked about two of the three works in the exhibition, uh, and the final work, which I understand is yeah. the, the most recent work, uh, is a yeah. large black snake coiled beneath a chandelier. Yeah. Ah, this one is sort of... Um, that was the most recent one. The other two were, uh, I'd say, Bullrock was from 2020 and uh, uh, Practical Magic, the camera was from 2016. This one I did in January this year is the most recent one. It's a big black snake with pearl eyes. I, I love those eyes. They're so spooky. That one, that, came, that one actually came directly from a hadith where there was this, again, a kind of surprising passage, I suppose, um, where... Yeah, according to the hadith, you know, your the um, how would I describe this? The, the unpaid any unpaid charity that someone may accrue over their life, once they pass on, will return to them as a big black snake who will announce, "I am your treasure," and then you got to deal with it. And it's like to me, I mean, it's you know, this is a, a metaphorical way of, I guess, describing a debt or a guilt or a weight, a burden that you got to, you know, make sure you serve during your life so you don't have to encounter it after life. And there's no way of thinking, oh, this is exactly what's going to happen when I drop dead. But I love the fact that it can, you know, this this animal can, you know, can describe a very human sensation of, you know, of guilt or, um, you know, 
It, it basically, whatever it takes to make sure people pay their charity and do the right thing in their lifetime. Um, that's what I see it as. Uh, and by putting that in the room and putting it in, you know, creating this experience that people will walk in and encounter this snake, I just love that. And <laughs> <laughs> put that, that, that chandelier just brings it into both a domestic space and an aspirational space. The chandelier is really low, so it drops right down over the, um, over the snake. Um, and she, that, I mean, I love working with chandeliers, but also that space at Linden, that, that the building itself, you know, there's a real grand domesticity to it. So I want to sort of take these things and put them into a, a lived-in space. Um, that's one of the reasons I really want to do this show at Linden, too, just the building itself. Yeah. Abdul Rahman Abdullah's Journeys is showing until the 4th of June at Linden New Art in St Kilda. You can jump online for more details, www.lindenarts.org, and the gallery itself is located at 26 Ackland Street in St Kilda, open Tuesdays to Sundays from 11am till 4pm and closed on public holidays. So if you were thinking of going to visit on, I don't know, one of the, the, the days of Easter, it will be closed. It should be open on the weekends, though. Uh, so Journeys, one of three exhibitions currently showing at Linden. Uh, Nell's New Old Wave is also showing there, and Kate Just's Self-Care Action Series, all showing at Linden New Art until the 4th of June. Entry is free. And, Abdul Rahman, I understand you're doing a floor talk this Sunday at midday. Yes, yes, this Sunday at midday. I'll be there having a chat about these works. So, um, yeah, if anyone's interested, come along. So that's a chance to hear in more detail directly from Abdul Rahman Abdullah about the exhibition journeys on now at Linden New Art until the 4th of June. Abdul Rahman, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival is in full swing, having officially kicked off yesterday and running through until the 23rd of April. One of the many shows that's on as part of the festival is Actually Good by Gillian Cosgriff, who joins us in the studio now. Gillian, welcome to Triple R. Hi, thanks for having me. Very great pleasure. Now, look, in the world of musical theatre, which you are not unfamiliar with, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a phrase called the triple threat, the person who sings, dances, and acts. Now, you're a singer, writer, actor, musician and comedian, so what's that, a quadruple threat? Sure, I just like to be employed. I just like to have a job. <laughs> just trying to cover all my bases. Well, you had a job for quite a while, a regular gig on stage uh, in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which I did. chewed up a lot of time. <laughs> Among many other things, that is one of the things it did, yeah. I was in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child for three and a half years. Not um, all of which was on stage, though, because no. you kept getting locked down. Yes, we did uh, We did a year and a bit, and then we had four weeks off, which turned out to be 11 months. And then in the second year, I think we had we had a couple of short ones, and then we had that super cute five-month one, and then we were back for a nice kind of long run at the end. So, um, yeah, it was great. I loved it. It was an incredible job to have. Um, you get paid every week, even in January. I don't know if you can believe that. Um, but it was very amazing. I loved it. Is it fairly rare for performers to have that kind of sustained, continual, uh, secure work? Yes, absolutely. And especially at that scale, you know, you might do um, a long-running musical, but even then it's sort of um, contract to contract and you're, maybe you're touring nationally. One of the incredible things about that show is that it was always only ever just going to stay in Melbourne. So for all of us to kind of, you know, put down roots and it's a job where a lot of people manage to buy houses out of having that job because the only time the bank believes you have an income. So... 
Um, yeah, it was really a very magical, literally a very magical thing. So yeah. it's great. Now, during the lockdowns, though, mm. there must have been a sense of dwindling hope that you would ever come back to the stage. And it's that sense of dwindling hope, that kind of the internal debate between pessimism, pessimism and optimism, which has informed your new comedy festival show, Actually Good. Yes, very much. I was not expecting to discover that I was secretly an optimist out of a global pandemic. That was quite a surprise to me. Not what I had on my apocalypse bingo card. Um, yeah, it, I always kind of thought of myself as a pessimist and kind of a cynic and and certainly through those periods where things were very um, dark and a bit miserable, there were days where I was like, we shan't be having any hope today. There's no room for her. I couldn't possibly. No, thank you. Um, and to kind of come out of it and be like, do you know what? I, it, things are going to be okay. Like everything was the worst it could possibly be and it was still, you know, still standing. So, yeah, I kind of discovered that I was an optimist. And at the end of that big um, big run of the show, I went on this holiday with my partner, which is honestly one of the reasons I wanted to do a commercial theatre show because everyone always goes on an amazing holiday when it's over, um, which is a perfectly good reason to accept a job. And on this holiday, my partner and I came up with this game where we asked each other for a list of ten things that we each liked. And that kind of formed the basis of this whole comedy festival show I asked all my friends I wrote them down and in the show every night I asked the audience for 10 things that they like and I write them down and we just have a big old chat through the whole show it's really lovely have you seen every brilliant thing a one-person show I have not no ah, it's because there's something that connects the two the the, the sense of lists and hope mm-hmm. and I love the idea of talking to people talking to strangers talking to friends um, about the the things that give us hope in in often really bleak and challenging situations um, the lists that you created include little things like I don't know um, what the smell of cloves yes. for example yeah, yeah. And there's been some beautiful – I've already done three shows this week. I started on Monday. So uh, on Monday somebody picked us their 10 McDonald's but only on a road trip. Um, there's been some – I love it when they're petty. What I really enjoy is that it's a scale of like something that you just like all the way up to something that you love because I think the full spectrum of human experience is also liking things that maybe you shouldn't like. Like um, somebody seven is winning an argument. Um, so there are things like that. Last night there was a man who um, one of his things that he really liked was that he had gotten his friend's kids hooked on a TV show that his friend hated. <laughs> he was just very pleased with himself about it. So there's a full range of, you know, really beautiful and really specific experiences in there. It's lovely. Now, I know in one of your previous shows, Gillian, you wrote a song informed by conversations with an audience yeah. member as the show progressed and performed it as the, the final number. Yes. Um, are you doing something similar in terms of weaving these stories of hope into a new song? Yes, very much. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I won't spoil it, but yes, there's a very similar vibe, and it's it's just so nice because it means that the show is different every night, um, which is lovely for me and lovely for my tech who has to watch the full run of Twenty Five. Um, but it just means it's it's a beautiful conversation, and it's about that audience that night and and whatever that kind of stuff that they throw up that becomes part of the show. It's lovely. Yeah. To come back to the idea of discovering that you were secretly an optimist. Mm. Uh, For some people, that would actually be a genuinely, um, I don't know, discombobulating experience. It could potentially change your worldview. 
Yes, it, it really genuinely has. I um, I was trying to work out what on earth my comedy festival show should be um, and I sat down with my friend um, Eve Blake who wrote the musical Fangirls who's a brilliant writer and just... Fantastic show. So good and such a smart, excellent, kind brain. And I was like, can I just say everything at you that I think is in this show and you can say, the show's about this because sometimes you need an outside eye. And I read her this big list and she was like, okay, well, that's a big fear salad. And she was like, there's great stuff in there. But she was like, I think maybe you have this idea of yourself as like a pessimist and a cynic and I was like obviously yes and she was like I would never describe you as that and she was like yes you are my friend Jill that is like you know nervous about all these things and spiraling and anxious but the day before I had asked her for her list of 10 likes and she was like you're also my friend Jill that goes through her life picking things up being like look at this isn't this amazing and she was like I think maybe you are very optimistic it I, it absolutely rocked me I was like this is so nice I never imagined <laughs> This could be a thing um, because I'm very cautiously hopeful, I suppose is what I would say, cautiously optimistic um, with good reason after the last few years, certainly. So, yeah, it's it's been a lovely thing to discover and figure out. And it's so funny because it's a comedy festival, right? You go, you're just going to make people laugh. You're going to do a great thing. But in my comedy career, certainly there is a very big trend towards like shows that are meaningful where you go, I can't make a comedy festival show about stuff that's nice. It has to be about something that's sad or tragic or horrifying. The Nanette effect. Yes, very that. And and so I had this real kind of imposter syndrome moment where I was like, am I just making a show that's about nice stuff? And I'm not. There is also, you know, there's some sad stuff in there. Don't worry, sadness fans. But um but that really surprised me too, to be like, of course you're allowed to make a comedy show about a positive experience. That's perfectly fine. In terms of creating a comedy festival show, talk to us about your, your process, uh, particularly the writing the songs that f- uh, form the through line of the show. Yeah, sure. It is largely chaos. Um, I Ordinarily, I would have all the songs kind of um, written in early in my career. That's what I would do and I would build the show around the songs. But this time, I was sort of picking and choosing. I knew what the structure of the show was, that I was going to be asking people for their 10 likes. And then I just have like 100 post-its on my wall of just things that make no sense even to me, like where I've gone half asleep, gone, that's a joke, and just written down gingerbread house negative gearing and I don't know what it means. Um, And so uh, for me what I do is I don't really like to um, sit and write straight away because I find it doesn't end up in my voice if I do that. So I will just improvise. I'll just record and I'll just improvise for an hour to myself out loud Um, and then I'll go through and I'll pick out, you know, that's interesting, that connects to that, that does not belong to this show, That's you're trying to prove a point there, throw her out and then kind of bookmark out of there what looks like it is a big enough idea to be a song and then write from there. If you're writing down straight from the word go and it doesn't end up in your voice, whose voice is it? (laughs) My hands, I guess. The voice that's trying to impress people by being a real writer. (laughs) I had this mental image now of your hands coming to life in the middle of the night, (laughs) horror movie style. Yes, very much. I'm chatting with Gillian Cosgriff about her new show for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Actually Good, which is on at the Butterfly Club uh, until going through until the 23rd of April. The whole shebang, yep. It sounds exhausting. It's a long run, yeah. I, one of the perks of being in an enormous, um, very long commercial theatre show is that everything after it seems quite easy. <laughs> um, it isn't easy. I was like, why am I tired? I've only done an hour, but it's just an hour of just me. Um, I've learnt to pace myself. In my 20s, I could go and see, you know, like five other shows a night and go and dance until 4am and eat a potato cake and think that I had a hangover, but I just didn't know what a hangover was. Um, so now I just eat my potato cake and go home. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the the wisdom of years. <laughs> now, 
In terms of your career, let's kind of step back away from this show for a moment because musical comedy, yes, stage acting as well. You've worked with the MTC, for example, and Mm -hmm. other companies. You've also co-written an opera. Yeah. (laughs) Wild, huh? (laughs) That still feels like a dream. I wrote, uh, I co-wrote this opera called Lorelei for Victorian opera with um, Casey Bonetto. Beloved triple R's, Casey Bonetto, and Julian Langdon, who composed the music. And that was incredible, but that came to me out of my musical comedy and cabaret work because I knew Ali McGregor, who does her um, late night variety night during the comedy festival. And I had done spots for her, and Ali obviously also straddles that kind of comedy, cabaret, and then opera world. And she had um, she had pitched this premise, an opera about the myth of the Lorelei of the sirens, um, to Victorian opera, and she just asked me if I was interested. And she was like, "Well, come and have a coffee." And I had a coffee with her and Casey and Sarah Giles, who became the director. And after that coffee, she was like, "Great, so we'll just send you an agreement." And I was like, "Has it? No one has checked to see if I know anything about opera. <laughs> I, had, I think I had seen maybe two operas." Um, and I and I wrote that show with Casey and and Julian and and Sarah who dramaturged it and it was just wild. It was just an unfathomable experience. It's not something I ever thought I'd do. Did your uh, experience with musical theatre at Whopper, for example, inform your ability to write an opera? I think so. I think having an understanding of the tropes of um, work that is sung through, what it means to have characters, um, you know, singing how they feel, but also covering kind of exposition and narrative. But what was so nice about it that I loved as an experience is that I don't have any formal training as a writer. I just started doing it. And um, obviously I had admired Casey Bonetta and his work for so long. And to sit down with Casey and to realise that the, a lot of the ways that he would write a song is how I would write a song. I just Because writers, you don't really talk to each other if you write by yourself primarily. You have no idea if anyone else is doing it, how you're doing it. So sitting there with him and just having this moment where we were kind of both like, I was like, wait, so what's the joke? It needs to land on, it needs to rhyme with cactus. And he's like, oh, yeah, so let's back engineer. And I was like, oh. That's exactly what I would do. I just didn't have a a term for it. So a lot of it was just really nice to kind of, you know, bat away some of the cobwebs of imposter syndrome and go, no, no, this is how someone who's very good at this is doing it. And, um, and to learn so much from him as well, but to, to collaborate and to kind of share both of our different styles of working was just like, it was better than any, um, any Hextet I could have acquired. (laughs) When you're grappling with an idea and trying to think, is this, where is this going to go? What am I going to do with it? Given that, as I said, you're a singer, writer, actor, musician and comedian, how do you know which, where it's going to land and what art form it is when you have an, an initial idea? Are you very conscious right from the word go, this is the seed of a new comedy show? Or are you thinking this could be anything? Yeah, I think what I love about being across so many kind of roles and disciplines is that there is a potential for things to be anything. And sometimes you you do try an idea out in one form and you go, this is not this is not a musical. Actually, I think this is a TV show. Or you go, this is a TV show, but no one will give me any money for that. So I'll make it as a podcast first and then I'll try and slip it in. So I think ideas are very um, malleable. And certainly in musical theatre, the number of musicals that are based on books, films, I mean, books that became films, you know, like, and like Mean Girls is such a fascinating example where it's a movie that was based on a book that became a musical and now they are making a movie of that musical. You know, like that is a wild kind of Ouroboros of content. (laughs) It really is chaos. So, um, 
Yeah, you sort of, I think I always, you have a feeling and you have the idea as comes with form a lot of the time. Um, and it's just about putting it into that shape and seeing if it wants to fill that mould or if it's uncomfortable and it needs to go somewhere else. Julian Cosgriff's Actually Good is on at the Butterfly Club as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and it explores themes of hope and positivity which God knows Melbourne needs after a couple of years of lockdowns. And I love the fact, again, that it comes down to sometimes just to simple, absurd, lovely things such as... Seeing a cow and yelling, cow, as you drive past. Who doesn't love that? It's perfect. Of the things that audiences have called out and contributed, do any really particularly stick in mind? I really like it when um, – it's interesting because when I talked to my um, – I talked to my agent about this show and he was like, well, surely you'll just be interested in the ones, in the number ones, Jills. And I was like, no, absolutely not. Like 654 is a beautiful ground of like creamy middles. Um, Guinness, high-waisted pants, um, cloves. Um, and then eight and nine, a lot of the time is about like the absence of bad. Like one friend of mine chose when you bought bread a few days ago and you think it's going to have mold on it, but it doesn't. And you still have bread left, you know, <laughs> like very small delights, which I really like. Just like tiny little perks of what it is to be human is a real treat. Actually Good is on at the Butterfly Club in the city until the 23rd of April, 8.30pm Mondays through to Sundays. Uh, no shows on the 5th, 12th and 19th of April. Tickets 28 to 37 bucks, and you can book by going to comedyfestival.com.au or by calling 9663-8107 or just rocking up to the Butterfly Club in Carson Place in the city uh, and buying tickets at the door. So comedyfestival.com.au 9663-8107 or at the door to book to see Gillian Cosgriff's Actually Good. Gillian, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Triple R. The one and only Tom Waits, Hold On, the name of that track, taken from the album Mule Variations. I played that song quite a bit at home to myself during lockdown. It was... Uh, became a little bit of an anthem for me, a little personal note. We will get through this. The reason I mention lockdowns is because back in 2020... Adrian Truscott and Legato Chocolat were going to be performing Grey Arias at the Malthouse. Uh, they were here, they were rehearsing, and then they had to fly home in order to escape the country before the borders closed and you were trapped here for years. <laughs> it's now finally happening. Welcome back to Triple R, the both of you. Thank, Thank you. you, Richard. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Adrian... Does it feel real yet that the show is actually going ahead, given the preparation that went into the last version before it was uh, put on ice? It feels insane and exciting. And I think what grounds both of us in that is that there's a lot about this work that just is like based organically in our friendship so that a lot of the topics that we are goofing around with we have always had like an ongoing conversation and we were in touch a ton of course during pandemic so I think that ground it's changed a it's lot changed a lot oh, wow, since yeah. three years ago in a pre-pandemic show to we're now with different people yeah yeah well, but um but yeah so it feels quite surreal to yeah. be back here like we were literally in the malt house and the flat we're staying in when we, right before the pandemic, when we were all like, I mean, how bad is it going to get? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the last place I ate out was Mario's. 
At least of it course. was a very iconic moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Legato, how did the two of you meet and why did you decide to make a show together? Um, so we met in a circus cabaret show called Le Clique in London and um, we became fast friends. So that would have been around 12, between 12 and 13 years ago, I think. And um, we became fast friends and gave each other access to quite a lot of intimate moments of our lives because I think that show and the work that we make invites us to um, have engage in discourse that involves identity and marginalized identity so it was um, over the years we have such a cache of messages on different platforms from Insta to Facebook to WhatsApp to different texts where we um, engage with extraordinarily uh uh what word did you use Dif- dense and spicy dense and spicy topics and sometimes triggering sometimes topics. really really triggering topics and i was like hey what do you think about mm. ha- the possibility of having these conversations on stage et voila <laughs> yeah and i think Specific to it is also that we ha- share that kind of drag, uh, queer community, cabaret, love language, where uh, barbs and insults and knowing things about one another are, are come swift and, and are, like, super enjoyable mm-hmm. and uh, funny and, sh- and show busy even when we're backstage. Yeah. So. so I think what became very apparent and interesting from very, very early on is that we granted each other access um, through our friendship to engage uh, in topics from race to gender to gender identity to sexuality but because of the intimacy and the license we give give each other the very prospect of putting those things on stage became (laughs) really sort of politically charged because we were asking, does the scaffold of our friendship give us that license on stage in front of people? We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with your kind of uh, separate bodies mm-hmm. of work, uh, Legato, you're um, a cabaret artist, mm-hmm. uh, a drag star. Mm-hmm. Uh, your musical style ranges across a multitude of, of genres and mm-hmm. forms, yeah. from children's theatre, Ducky, mm-hmm. yes. the show that you made, through to performing... Uh, Wagner's Tannhauser, which made you the subject of some opprobrium, I think it would be safe to say. Absolutely, and we sort of talk about that in the show. Um, I think sometimes I, I, I underestimate... It was one very interesting thing happened when I was doing um, uh, Le Clique. Um, the sound guy, who is from Melbourne, pulled me aside. We're talking about how Ness and Dorma function in the show. And Simon was like, so you know that bit where you turn around and you, you flick your hair and it gets a round of applause and clap or a laugh? He was like, I, since we were doing it in the Hippodrome... I've been trying to understand what that moment is about. And it's like you walk down, um, Nessendorma is football, is also Pavarotti, and you're singing as a, as a bass, and you turn around and you're black. 
And I was like, oh my, I just, I had never known or considered that that was part of the currency. And I think that is what I completely underestimated when I went to perform Tannhäuser in Bayreuth. So much so that, as you know, it became um, quite a provocative international incident with journalists from here who weren't there writing about it um, and across the globe. And if we're talking about provocation, then, Adrian, your work, for example, I mean, you're a, a I think your background's originally in choreography yeah. uh, before you then got into uh, circus and dance and performance art. So people may know you through the Val Val sisters. I first saw your solo show, and I think this is my introduction to your work, um, asking for it, a one-lady rape about comedy starring her pussy and little else. That's uh, me. Back at the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2014. So you're both prepared to push buttons and push boundaries, but talk to us about the boundaries that you have to respect with one another when you're performing on stage together. Between Ghetto and myself? Um, I think we kind of understand that we trust the craftsmanship that theatre, that allows us to make a theatrical scaffolding to, like, care for one another and, uh, and then also care for the audience while provoking them with intelligence and thoughtfulness. And I think that part of is part of what feels powerful is that Ghetto and I like love and trust one another enough that we allow each other uh, those questions in gray areas about particularly gender straightness or queerness or gayness race that I think we've all experienced sometimes has gotten to be a bit of a black and white conversation. And even though there are gray areas, it can, and nuance that require nuanced conversation or very, very complex comedy or uh, that kind of thing. Like it's, it can be really hard to access that. And we are able to do that with each other. Cause I think, you know, we trust that if I'm asking Gateau a question about, race or an incident I overheard or, you know, that he allows me a little more grace than sometimes the world at large allows strangers to say, hey, I had this reaction to this. And, you know, and then it becomes something sort of meaty and interesting to us. And we are also very honest with one another when it's like, and then I was going to say this, don't. Don't ever say that, you know, so. Yeah. And I think that is that is one of the really interesting things about where the show dares to go is we know that there are increasingly less spaces to engage intelligently and compassionately about some um, ideas as we continue to expand our vocabulary around all the topics that we've mentioned. Um, So. That's why it feels dangerous, is that even as an ally to different issues, I cannot and should not and will not be the main voice, even though I consider myself a a feminist, if we were in a convention and someone handed the microphone and went, someone speak on feminism, I would hand the microphone to Adrian. But... I think I would also have the license to ask Adrian some questions that could be perceived as incredibly difficult. And without our friendship and without nuance could, in the world today um, that sort of revels in the currency of cancel culture, um, 
those sorts of conversations would be shut down. So I think that we, we, we want to go, we want to interrogate the loss of that space. Can we ask these questions and can we ask them intelligently and can we ask them, can you trust that we have rigorously interrogated our process so that when we ask these questions, it isn't in pursuit of injury, is in pursuit of broadening our understanding and knowledge on these issues. And since both of us tend to perform in sort of goofy, funny, like hopefully spreading joy contexts, it's all wrapped up in like what is meant to be entertaining. Yeah. So that it's not badgering, you know, because no, 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 I think no, no, people no. are a bit exhausted by, <laughs> by, some by of badgering. It. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. yeah, particularly on Twitter the last couple of weeks oh with my uh, God. Kind of one of the uh, exponents of Turf Island visiting oh Australia, for God. example. But um, in terms of creating comedy out of the conversations uh, you've just discussed, uh, it feels like it could be walking something of a knife edge. Oh my God, it always is. It always is. It always is, and I think, I mean, certainly that was my gambit in uh, with asking for it, which is that I've, I'm not suggesting that anyone be censored, make whatever jokes you like. I might make different ones with different intentions, and we'll have different audiences, or who knows, but I still think, and I, you know, I still think comedy, we know, provides this very particular surprising place of release and revelation even though you might be just holding a pipe and giggling but it's still there it's still an opportunity and um i still really love playing in that realm and seeing um how to expand it to include other people and their experiences and my experiences and i you know the whole thing about like ah, you can't say anything in comedy more wah. It's just really an opportunity to deepen your comedy and welcome new material and get funnier. I was thinking literally just about that that line of, oh, you can't say anything anymore. Uh, And a show like Grey Arias that the two of you are creating um, shows that you can do that. You just have to do it intelligently. Absolutely. I think you've got to be very sensitive and sensible. Um, And I think one of the really interesting things about this show that we hope to explore is also the relationship that audiences, people, society's collective consciousness has with what they consider high art and what they consider low art. And drag and cabaret is not considered high art, um, but operas are. And um, there are so many things in my life, when I was pitching, um, we were getting further and further into a vehicle for the show, the scaffold for the show. There's so many things that I I have seen um, on the opera stages of the uh, across the globe that make you go, uh, I, what, how, how, <laughs> and that's I'm, just the singing. I'm, uh, what, how are you, what, you're, is, is this a, okay, wow, okay, sure, okay, mm-hmm. um, and it's really interesting that in the critique of them, no one. A lot of they they're allowed to massage what is incredibly problematic because one is considered high art and two they've paid up teen um, hundreds of pounds to for the privilege of watching it and you're like guys I know that you're in tuxedos but um, this is still a problem and so why is high art allowed? the license to continue to make those extraordinarily 
um, extraordinary failures and faux pas, uh, cultural ones, and no one, no other sort of genre of art making is allowed, allowed the same latitude. I mean, interestingly, opera is just just now getting touched by the same. Just now, like, just. hang on a minute, just. guys. I mean, in Sydney last year, I think there was, uh, the year before, there was uh, uh, controversy because uh, there was yellow face used in a production. <laughs> coming up. Coming up. Yeah. Um, but also, 2019, I mean, she's no longer part of the... Um, of the star rostra at the Met- Metropolitan Opera. But in 2019, one of the world's leading sopranos, Alan Trebko, is in Aida in blackface. And there are pictures on the website, there are pictures on her Instagram page, and you go... There are so many things that had to happen for me to be seeing this picture. There's somebody who'd have done your makeup. There's design. There's the dress call. There's the um, dress rehearsal. There are so many positions and peoples and departments that had to um, conspire to arrive at me being able to see this picture online. And I, th- I just that's in 2019. That is the most. That is okay. So sure, mm-hmm. but I, I. I'm I'm I remain baffled by it. I remain baffled by it. Well, and look at America now, like before the pandemic, it was bad enough. We had Trump in. And now, like look at what's going on with abortion laws in the last three years, which are you know And so, dr- and drag laws. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. I mean all of that since the pandemic, since we were making this. So of course, you know, the world has changed and some of it feels laughable in that way that you're like, well, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Yeah. <laughs> How does this give you a better bedrock to create good comedy? How do you push back against that stuff? And how does the, the kind of anger at what's going on in the world, such as the, the don't say gay bills in the USA, right. the abortion kind of rollback, et cetera, how does that help drive and craft incisive, clever comedy? I mean, I guess I think because... You know, on some level, the brilliance of comedy is that it reaches so many people, even and it's still considered, you know, maybe not by comics, but by audiences like a very working class, middle class, you know, just show up and have a two glass, you know, two drink minimum. And at the same time, I think at its core, a, a punchline is a revelation and the comic gets to take people down a road they think they know they're going down and then surprise them with this other way of thinking about it that frequently is like the chemistry in that moment is like people going like, oh, shit, that's true. So I think, you know, in some ways you just have to laugh at the, f- well, laugh uh, to, 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 at the horror to of the it. effing morons yeah. I mean, that are in office in are, the United States. Like, 100%. I mean, it's either, you know, we're too capitalist and privileged to ever have a revolution, sadly. Um, so, you know, we take to the streets with signs, but that's about it. We've seen what other countries do when this stuff happens. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I'm not convinced comedy is the way to confront it anymore, but... Uh, it's one of the ways, too. The governor of Tennessee, I believe, um, proudly signed into law the um, the limiting of drag performance. 
Um, and they've just had um, a mass shooting in the same area. And they, there are two videos of him. Him describing it as disgusting, drag as disgusting, and then signing it into law. And then him being asked about what he was going to do about the gun laws. And he, and he says, we won't fix it. And those videos are side by side. And then the, the um, journalist asks him... What about your young daughter? What would you do for her? And his response was, "Well, we we homeschool her." And you go, "That is so dis- that is so dis." <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it is so dystopian <laughs> that I think the only thing that can release you from how blackly dystopian it is is laugh because sometimes we are powerless um and we can our jobs allow us to hold a mirror and sometimes the mirror is funny and it gets people to be in a place of openness to receive the message or to question things that they thought they knew and I also think, you know, some of our most renowned comics and I may speak from a two American place are incredibly angry, right? Like George Carlin, furious. Um, oh, God, I can't remember anybody because of jet lag. But anyway, we'll go with George Carlin. But there's all those other ones. Doug Stanhope. Like, they are all, so often, their comedy comes from their outrage. Um, and I don't think female-identified people have felt the same license to come from a place of outrage. Uh, and it's frequently self-deprecation, but I think a lot of other comics from other of other identities and races are tuning in to the way in which, if you have that kind of comic mind, anger is frequently the source that like gives you the language and the twisty architecture to expose the stupidity of the thing. Adrian Truscott and Legato Chocolat are performing in their new work, Grey Arias, uh, at the Malthouse Theatre, located in Sturt Street, South Bank, as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, it's on in the Beckett Theatre uh, from the 30th of March, so from today, previewing from tonight. today, Ooh. world premiere. No pressure, no <laughs> pressure. Uh, running through until the 16th of April, Tuesdays to Saturdays at 8.45, Sundays at 7.45, tickets ranging from 20 to 45 bucks. You can book at comedyfestival.com.au or call 9685 5111 9685 or or just rock up to the Malthouse and buy tickets at the door. But I recommend booking because I suspect there's going to be a lot of interest in grey areas. Oh, thank you, Richard. Legato and Adrian, it's been an absolute delight. Thanks for joining me. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 